This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today. Another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Today's episode, I'm going to cover another case study. This one, I hold dear and near to my heart. A lot of fun, a lot of work. Uh, it's here in the Kansas City Metro where I live, so I've been on site on this property. Well, probably a hundred times in the last two and a half years since we bought it. Uh, it's been almost three years, I guess, by the time of this recording. Uh, fun deal. Um, learned a little bit of everything. You're going to hear lessons learned. I mean, some of the regular blocking and tackling, you know, increase rent, cut expenses, infill homes, turnover park-owned homes, renovate park-owned homes, submeter water sewer, you know, add amenities, general park cleanup, painting program, beautification program, number of the things you've heard me talk about before. A lot, a lot of that stuff is kind of the blocking and tackling. Uh, a couple of things that set this apart was really how I found it, how I funded it, how I decided to keep it, some zoning stuff that was really kind of next level, if you will, and really helped me a lot. And then just um, a bunch of work, a bunch of effort, and it ended up being being pretty fruitful. So this deal, it's plus or minus 100 pads, and I say plus or minus because when I first bought it, I thought it was 92 pads plus a site-built house, so 93. I think now the municipality and I agree it's 100 pads. At the time, the the seller told me it was 117 pads, but they kind of goofed. The seller, I bought this park in December 2018 for 1.3 million and really 1.25 million because I ended up getting a seller paid credit of 50k and and going the route of the seller paid credit is better than a price reduction because in this case I had an 80% loan and you know I got 80% of 1.3 million which I believe is 1040 if my memory serves let me do the math here 1040 million 40 so I got a million 40 loan oh by the way I got 50,000 cash at closing which really helped funds on my capex as opposed to if I got a million 250 it took the fifty thousand in a price reduction times an eighty percent loan. It was a million, so a forty thousand dollar additional cash saving. And this day, this deal I syndicated, so that was basically well, the minimum was fifty k. So that was basically one less investor I need to split the pie with. Uh, when I was first looking at syndication, I'm gonna get on a tangent here because that's kind of how this episode is gonna go because there's so much to cover and I'm I'm gonna try to knock it out in a half an hour or so, but but we'll see. Um, when I first started looking at syndication years ago. I felt like there wasn't that much out there as far as transparent information and realistic information. So I'll be fairly transparent on this and some of my subsequent case studies. Um, my split was 35%, 35-65 GPLP. At the time, I think the norm was anywhere from 20 to 30, occasional 35. Sometimes you'll see guys do 50-50, but they won't pay a pref. In this case, in order to get this deal funded, I paid a 10 pref. That's a 10% preferred return to my investors. I raised $750,000. I took a $100,000 commission, and I get another $100,000 commission You know, if and when I return the capital to my limited partners. 
So 100000 wasn't bad, but I told the investors, look, you don't want me out there mowing grass on weekends or practicing law on weekends. You want me out here working on this deal. So I said, I'm going to really focus on managing this deal. And I didn't practice law for you know the entire first year. I didn't, I didn't bill an hour. I probably billed like 1500 bucks something for like quasi-friends. But realistically, I didn't really practice law at all. I said, I'm, I'm going to focus on this deal because if I can make this deal work, you know, I'm going to learn everything there's to know about the business from a ground level, but I'm also going to probably make, you know, a million dollars, which is more than I would make practicing law so by, by a considerable margin. So I thought, well, let's give it, let's give it a go. So got it tied up. Okay, I'm going to go back and forth here. How did I get it tied up? Well, I used to do real estate development, retail development, and I had worked on, I still own part of a grocery store in this town, I was part of the redevelopment of a grocery store. And we were doing some pad sites. We had, man, we I thought we had Chase Bank. Thought we had Cheddar's, uh, some other restaurant pads on this one project. But ended up uh, my business partner, who was cantankerous of a man, that's the nicest thing I'll say about him, uh, ended up getting sideways with the city. So we ended up not getting our tax incentives, didn't get the deal done. I had previously done some uh, retail leasing and legal work on some big power center shopping centers. Uh, my old partner had done hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate development in this town, and I was involved in, in much of it. So really got to know the city. Well, prior to being on the private side of the development, I worked at a law firm here in Kansas City. We were kind of a boutique law firm, did you know high-end commercial real estate projects, including tax incentives, land use development, zoning, those sort of matters. We mostly represented developers, but we represented a few cities. We happened to represent this city. And I was outside counsel assigned to the city on tax incentive matters. So I really got to know the economic development department, the city manager, the mayor, uh, some of the other public works, planning, zoning departments. Got to know them all. And then I went private and worked on the kind of on the other side, but worked pretty pretty well, pretty collaboratively with this this community. Well, I was doing retail, and this plot of ground came for sale, and this municipality hated trailer parks. And the mayor told me as such. He drove me around in the suburban and showed me all the other trailer parks in town and all the vacancy and all the crap. And the reason he he showed me this is because the economic development director called me and said, hey, hey, Ferd, would you guys like to build high-end apartments or senior housing? And I said, where? And he, they said, this location. And I said, it doesn't make sense, this location. They said, why not? I said, because you've got green grass, virgin dirt, with visibility in the interstate, half a mile away, and it's selling for... Dollar fifty-two bucks a foot. I said that means this site's worth about nine hundred thousand bucks, if it was that dirt. But it wasn't that dirt. This is an inferior location with a bunch of people in the way and infrastructure in the way. So if you want me to buy this ground, clear out about a low, clear out a bunch of low-income people, trash their trailers, rip up the infrastructure to then have virgin dirt in an inferior location, I'm gonna have to buy it for considerably less than nine hundred thousand dollars. And that's if I even want to be on Channel Nine as being the bad guy that does that, which I don't. So I said, it's not going to happen. I said, as a trailer park, I'd pay more than $900,000 and so would the market. And they said, how do you know that? I said, because I own trailer parks on the side, as I like to call them, mobile home parks for manufactured housing communities. And their hearts kind of sunk. We thought you were going to be our, our kind of escape route on this park because the seller has told us this thing is um, a nightmare. We have uh, just about $3 million cash in this deal. They bought it for like a million. They put two million cash. They had no debt. It was a rich surgeon out of Chicago and a kind of a businessman, uh, philanthropist out of uh, Sacramento. And they had no debt on it, and they still had negative cash flow. So you want to look at cap rate? 
well, what's my cap rate when I buy when my NOI is negative? Okay, why was it negative? They had 11 personnel. Again, 93-pad trailer park. There were about 40 occupied sites. And I say about because a couple of them, you know, you count the vacant, you count the abandoned. There were 20 tenant-owned homes, and there were 20 park-owned homes. The park-owned homes had three or four that were occupied. There were also two homes that were abandoned that I had to get title to and uh, demo demolish. So call it about 40, but paying tenants, we had about 22 occupied paying tenants and about 18 unoccupied non-paying tenants. And lot rent was 300 bucks, and that was gross. It included water sewer, but then it was kind of included water sewer because, well, they tried to bill back per human. Like, okay, $10 per human. Well, then you had, you had some, some families with three generations there. They had 12 people living in a double wide. You know, so are they really tracking that right? They weren't. They had another guy that had his kids on the weekends. He was getting pissed because he was getting billed for his kids, but he only lived there by himself one day a week and, and so on. So they kind of just quit billing by human. But then the landlord was eating it, so they said, well, let's bill by appliance. Okay, so if you have a washer-dryer, it's 10 bucks. Well, guess what? People quit claiming they had a washer-dryer, and they all would start doing laundry at the other person's house, those sort of things. So it was a bad system, tons of leakage. The park manager was local. Um, she was being paid 80000 a year to run 22 tenants, and she was not good at it, and she refused to work on site because she didn't think it was safe. Um, she happened to have five maintenance personnel, an executive assistant, uh, a property manager, a head of property management, two salespeople, and a bookkeeper, uh, and over $200,000 of payroll, which is why they had negative NOI and they had negative cash flow despite having zero debt service. She also put in place uh, vendor contracts like high-end security cameras, which, by the way, didn't work because there wasn't Wi-Fi throughout the park. The park's like 10 acres, so that didn't really work. So one lesson learned is in the contract, I, uh, luckily, my contract, you say luckily, I think it was, it was being rather astute, or one would say, my wife would say, paranoid, but my contract says the seller shall terminate all vendor contracts and personnel contracts immediately prior to closing. Which worked out really well in this instance because the security contract was over $1,000 a month. It had a 10-year termination provision, which they tried to stick me with. And I said, I never signed that contract. I'm not buying that. In fact, the seller was required to cancel that immediately prior to closing. So, sorry. Go away. And then the manager, who I decided not to retain, I had made this decision, but I had not given her notification of this yet, nor the residents, because at the time her father was sick and dying. And I was like, it was around the holidays. We closed December 12, 2118. So I was like, I was making this decision around Thanksgiving. I was like, I don't really feel like firing this lady around Thanksgiving and Christmas while her dad's dying. So I was kind of still evaluating my timing and, and to some degree giving her one final chance. And I was going to potentially offer her considerably less, uh, less of a compensation package. But I was like, nah, I don't even want to do that. She was, she, over time, she proved to be just not the right person. Um, Lucky for me, she sent out a letter to the tenants saying, basically, dear tenants, we're selling the park. I know I've been God's gift to you, and you'll try to go, try to move on. She seriously said stuff like this. I know you'll try to move on, and but for me, this place would have been miserable, and I did everything I could to make it an enjoyable place, and I know you guys appreciate me so much, and I'm just going to leave. I'm going to spend time with my dying father. Well, luckily, I got a copy of that letter. Uh, after I bought it, but the letter was dated like December 1. And right around the time she told me she was going to leave. I was like, okay, great. Well, post-closing, 
I get a letter from the Missouri Department of Unemployment saying she filed for unemployment. And I said, you don't get unemployment if you quit. They go, well, she says you fired her. I said, really? Well, here's the contract that says the seller had to fire her. And here's a copy of a letter that she sent out three weeks before I bought the park. How did I fire her at that time? And it was dismissed. And I got out of paying her unemployment on this person. So that worked out. So strong contract. That's one of the lessons learned, right? Another lesson learned. You don't need 11 payroll or people on payroll to run this park. Okay, how I found it. Lesson learned, be lucky, right? I mean, to be honest, that's part of it. The city called me. I ended up bidding against a couple other guys. I convinced them, and I bonded with the guy. And he happened to be a, a Christian uh, ministry guy. Uh, I'm a Christian. We, we went and met for three or four hours. We talked about trailer parks for half an hour and about religion for two or three hours. And it was genuine. And I happened to know a couple of verses of the Bible uh, and Revelations. That, yeah, as a Catholic, he was surprised that I knew, right? Um, Catholics have a bad reputation for not knowing the Bible relative to Protestants. In this case, hey, it worked out okay. No disrespect to my uh, brethren of other religions, but in this case, uh, I built rapport based on just being me, right? And him being him. And he took my offer. Uh, he never encountered it, to be honest. He just said, this that seems like a fair offer. And these guys were bleeding. They wanted out. Here was the catch. The seller, the big seller, who was not the guy I bonded with, the main seller, he was a surgeon that owned like an urgent care facility and like like a brand he had like i think it was 38 of them and he sold them to a big national outfit uh and he made tens of millions of dollars and it was in 2018 and he was going to take a big tax hit and he knew he had a big loss on the trailer park so he said if you gotta close by new year's eve and if you can't get a loan that fast at about 40 days if you can't get a loan that fast then i'll sell or finance it but the catch was he wanted to do a 10-year amortization um, he wanted 40% down and 6% interest, which at the time was about market interest rate. Um, so that's, a, that's a lot of money. Oh, and it needed significant CapEx. So some of the CapEx stuff that I ended up doing, new signage, repaved the streets, submeter to water sewer. We got rid of the dumpster and added polycard. That wasn't really CapEx. We added rose bushes, added white picket fences, uh, new street signage. We painted all 40 houses, demolished a couple. We put in a playground and a dog park. Later in life, we put in a second dog park. And not, excuse me, a second playground, a bigger kind of commercial playground because it's so many kids move in. They're beating up the first uh, kind of backyard playground. We upgraded the storm shelter to make it more of like a community center, which was kind of on and off, to be honest, because kids would get in there and, you know, draw, you know, body parts on the wall and stuff like that. And so we ended up closing it off. Um, we upgraded the office a little bit. And... In general, the rest was just infill, and we infilled uh, just over 50 homes. Five or six of those were used homes, but most of them were new. Got our retailer's license, did HUD sets. This is Missouri. Missouri's a HUD state. So I got real familiar with that, and we laid driveways and put in uh, decks. Another lesson learned. We put in big decks, minimum 8x8. Eight eight. The competition was putting in 4x4. Four four. couple lessons learned that helped us kick the competition's butt. When I say the competition, I mean... Three of the five largest mobile home park owners in the country were within two miles of us, and two of them were like 500 yards away. And we just crushed them. And we crushed them for a couple main reasons. One, we put in better decks. Two, our lot rent was cheaper. We uh, were at 300. We immediately went to 350. Um, we we On the one-year anniversary, we went to 375. On the two-year anniversary, we went to 400. We refinanced with Fannie Mae uh, immediately after the two-year anniversary hit. 
they generally want 90% occupancy for 90 days. And they want park on homes, which include any homes you sell on rent to own or contract for deed. That ratio needs to be below 35%. So as I was infilling, I was constantly looking at uh, renters versus tenant-owned homes. And I'd put renters in there and do rent credits to try to convert them. And we'd even give them a rent credit for a portion of their down payment to get them financed with 21st mortgage or triad. So we used a lot of those strategies. There's one lesson learned, cheaper rent. Another rent lesson learned, better decks. Um, another lesson learned, work harder, work overtime. COVID hit in the middle of this. Everybody else was hiding behind their bunny slippers in Biden's basement, and they weren't selling homes. Um, we worked six days a week, sometimes seven, for 18 months, and we sold, counting the renovations, we sold about 70 houses in 18 months. And I'm talking a competitive market uh, right there. And and it worked out. But the, the number one reason that we beat the competition um, it's probably because I used to work at a zoning law firm, and my mentor, Mike White, was uh, just world-class. And I, I probably know five, sometimes I think on a good day, 10% as much, as much as he knows on zoning. But you know, realistically, that puts me ahead of a lot of other people, um, especially in this asset class where, where legal services, I, as I know from experience now, are, are rarely, uh, rarely had and rarely paid for. Um, well, I happen to have some of these legal services, legal skills, and I, I looked at the city code, and I read it, and I read the things that were grandfathered, and I read the things that were part of development or redevelopment, and I knew what applied and I knew what didn't. And I read the business license stuff, and I knew what applied and knew what didn't. And I sat down with the city, and they said, we need you to do this, 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 this. And I said, okay, show me in the code where I must do that. And the fire chief was there, and he goes, well, you don't really have to. I just would like it. And which goes back to my expansion lot, the 117 pan. The last guys, I saw the receipts. They paid $474,000 for fire hydrants, upgraded electric, upgraded water sewer on the expansion area of two acres where they were going to put in a bunch of homes. And the city told them you need these fire hydrants. I said, where's that in the code? And the guy said, well, I was going to hold up their business license. I said, the business license is 100 bucks. You can get it for being a you know, hairstylist out of your mom's basement. You can't hold up a business license over fire hydrants. He goes, well, you're probably right. But I got myself two fire hydrants. So he really stuck it to him. On the expansion, these guys goofed. And you did need mobile home permits or occupancy permits in order to infill lots. It's 60 bucks. It's pretty much rubber stamp um, if, if the lots are legitimate. These guys put in the infrastructure. They even hired the utility provider to put in the 200-amp electric. They upgraded it. And they put these pads real close together. And somebody from planning came by one day and said, what you guys doing? And they go, oh, we're putting in RVs. And they said, RVs aren't allowed in this town. And the one owner, I heard the story second hand, one owner looks at the other guy and said, you got the permits, right? And he said, I thought you were getting the permits. And there went a, hundred, there went a half a million dollars right down the toilet. So lesson learned, read the code. Here's where the code benefited me. The code said we require one deck and recommend if you put a second deck that the second deck is they're both at least four by four. So the other parks, including these top operators, put two four by four decks on. Four by four deck in this market costs about a thousand bucks installed. An eight by eight deck costs about fifteen hundred bucks installed. And you can get a set of steps from Royal Supply for two twenty five. You can get them installed for another thirty bucks. So 
what they were doing was putting in two crappy decks. You couldn't put a chair on them, you couldn't put a table on them, you could barely get them at your couch. Where I was putting in one legit deck, 8x8, and on my double wides I put in more, uh, 10x20 or 8x16, depending on the layout. And I put a set of steps in the back, so I was actually coming in cheaper than the competition with the with a superior deck product. Other things we did, we figured out what had to be done by a pro, what could be done in-house. In this town, you had to have a licensed installer sign off on the HUD set, but you didn't have to have a licensed electrician. So I had a guy on my payroll, or a couple guys on my payroll, that we taught to do 200 lamp, 200 amp electric. We'd dig the trench, run the conduit, put the sweet briar, that's the, that's the three-prong wire they run in there, and the ground rods in. And they'd run it underneath the home, and they'd hook it up, and the inspector, and the home, the home, the home installer, and the inspector would say, it looks good to me. And we were paying, I don't know, 15 to $20 an hour for four to six hours instead of an electrician may charge you 300 or 600 bucks. So we were, making, we were saving lots of money on that. But the, back to my point of the code. The deck was important. The electric was important. But the key was the setbacks. The code says 20-foot setbacks, perimeter setbacks. 10-foot internal, which is 10-foot was the fire code, Missouri, so we had to follow the fire code because fire code is, uh, impacts the public health, safety, welfare, and morals, which trumps grandfathering, just like nuisance, just like abandonment, one of the, really the three things that trump grandfathering. I was grandfathered in. My park was from the 1960s. It predated the code of 2009. I, I drafted a zoning letter. Uh, I take some pride in this. It's one of the only legal documents anybody ever really creates from scratch I mean at least for me most time you get a lease it starts as a template you got a contract it starts as a template some super lawyer in the basement of New York City spent 20 years drafting a template and everybody else has been you know stealing it and modifying it with experience with skills but modifying it um, over the years and years and years uh, well the zoning literature I just kind of came up with and I said what do I want and I want well I want to know the vacant lot can I use it or not if it's can I bring a new home or used home can I bring it any size can I put it wherever I want there's a, if there is a home there, can I refill it? Can I refill it with use? Can I refill it with new? Can I refill it if the house burns down? What if the house moves away? A single wide, a double wide, what's the size? What's the age? And so on. And I was able to sit, prove that portions of the code were not applicable to me based on when they came into fruition in my grandfathered rights. And I had paid for a nice table A Alta survey uh, on this property. I actually got the seller to pay for it, but it was like $14,000. So it was, it was extremely detailed. And I got the city planning director to sign off saying that I had zero setback lines, despite the code saying 20. I brought in over 50 homes, and I kid you not, I put them one inch from the property line, which, lucky for me, was 76 feet. Now, some of them were like 75 feet, so I stuck that home out into the internal street. I got a couple homes sticking in the street. But the difference between a 1676, or as we say, a 1680, when you count the four-foot hitch. By the way, I cut off all the hitches as part of my painting program. Um, they look like heck. They look like trailer parks instead of manufactured housing. Plus, Fannie Mae really requires it. Um, I put in 76-foot homes. A 1676 is 1,216 feet. A 1666 is 1,056 feet. That 100, 160 feet, that's a 10 by 16 bedroom. That's another bedroom. You go drive the other parks, and I've taken every one of my employees by these parks, and I tell them the story, and I say, look at that right there. That's the best operator in the country, supposedly. And look what they got behind their home. They got 20 feet of grass, baby. And they're, they're selling 48, 46 footers, 56 footers, 66 footers. So look what I got. I got a 1680. And it's got three beds, two baths. And I can sell them in my sleep. 
in my entire perimeter, I put those homes in. And I was selling them. Um, one of the main one of the main operators. I was doing my due diligence, 115 fans, 500 feet down the street. They had 15 vacant. I go, yeah, they're a major operator. They were, I think, number four or five in the country at that time. Um, I said, man, they're going to be a stiff competition to get the same quality park. The other two bigger operators had better parks, you know, basketball court, pools, clubhouse. They're not really the same animal. They were higher rent. This guy had a similar rent, similar quality park. And I go, he's got 15 vacant. You know, I got to bring about 50. We'll be pretty competitive for the first 15. But after that, if he's full, well, then he's full. And I don't have much competition. I kid you not, the week of closing, he demoed 60 houses. They did. They demoed 60 houses. It took them like two weeks. And they knocked out a ton of trees, and they said, we're starting over. And they brought in 15 home spec. I didn't have that kind of shot split to bring 15 home spec. I brought in six home spec from six different manufacturers, different quality points. And I had a couple in my internal lots that couldn't fit a 76, so I brought in a double, and I brought in a 16 by 66, and I brought a 14 by 66. And, which I'll never do again. That little cracker box did not sell well. And I was like, holy cow, I got a lot of competition. But they brought in 66-footers, and they brought in all singles. I brought in doubles. I brought in the Trues. I brought in the Claytons. I brought in Adventure. I brought in, Cha I brought in Champion. And we had a different price point. And then there's lots of different Claytons, by the way. I brought in the Clayton Independent out of Waco. I brought in the Clayton Pulse out of Wakarusa. I bought in, brought in the Redmond Advantage from Champion, and I brought in the Commonwealth and the Dutch Edge. You know, see so different plants, different different styles, uh, different bed bath counts, different layouts. I brought in every true home they made, just about. Um, those those really worked out pretty well, despite a lot of people give them a bad rap. But I, I sold 20 true in this park, um, so it worked out really well. So by bringing in those bigger homes. I was able to offer a much bigger, better housing product and for nearly the same price. And by the time I had savings on doing my own electric, my own deck, my own driveways, my own skirting in-house, I was actually, I had a lower cost than the big boys on uh, on their, their 66-foot homes, not a 76-foot home. So that was key. I call it my million-dollar zoning change because that's how much the difference it made was a million dollars. Other things we did... We switched the, you know, trash to polycart, which kept from beating up our roads to the dumpster. We were able to um, build that back to the residence. Actually, no, this park, we actually still paid it on time. I think we had a restriction on that. So we still pay it ourselves. Um, second lot from the corner. I had entire streets. I'm looking at my map, and I got 10, 10 homes on a street. Entire street's vacant. So I had to fill them, right? So rather than fill the corner lot, what I strategically did, I filled the second lot from the corner. I never told anybody that I was never going to fill the corner lot, but they thought, ooh, there's nobody in front of me. I got a big yard. I got the corner lot, even though it was clearly another room for another home right there. And I'd sold those first. And it ended up being pretty genius because then I sold those lots, and then people thought I had a corner lot. Six months, and I, strategically, I wouldn't fill the next lot right away because it pissed people off. But I'd wait and fill some other ones, fill some other ones, and then I'd later fill it, three, four, five, six, seven, eight months later. And the person would be like, wait a second, I thought I was in the corner. It's like, why do you think you're in the corner? There's clearly a pedestal there, a sewer hookup. Like, they go, yeah, we just thought it would take forever because, you know, this place has been vacant for years. I say, well, sorry. Yeah, I'm really sorry, not sorry. But then the next person, it was a legit corner lot, and they knew it. And I would strategically put double wise in the corners with big decks. I'd use some cherry deck, cherry wood instead of just a regular treated pine. And it looked really good. And 
then it was easy to sell those lots because they were legit corner lots. So that was another thing that we did that really worked out. Submetering made sense. We enforced a bunch of rules. We bought the abandoned homes. Um, rather than go through the Abandoned Title Act, which is a huge pain, slow and expensive, we would just find these people on Facebook or find them somehow and we'd say, look, I'm not trying to chase you down, but I could chase you down for a lot rent and I could garnish your tax return, I could garnish your income, I could sue you. Some of this stuff which was a bluff. Uh, but tell you what, give me the title, I'll give you a $100 bill. And they thought I was trying to like serve them or something. So I said, look, meet me in Panera. When I go to the park, I go on Tuesdays, I, I wear a white shirt and a black ball cap. I'm going to be a guy sitting there looking like that at Panera with a $100 bill on the table. Bring the title and take the $100 bill. And you can see that I'm there. I had Bible study there at 6 a.m. So I'm like, I'm there at 6 a.m. You show up at anytime after 7. I'm going to be the only guy sitting there. But you'll see there's no, like, police or somebody to serve you with a subpoena. Just show up. And it worked. And I got a couple abandoned homes like that, which saved me some money. Other things I do is I tow cars. And people have abandoned cars, or people are, you know, have six cars that are being a huge pain. I start towing cars, they start falling in line. Uh, other upgrades we would do, we would, um, we'd add laminate flooring. The factory comes with either carpet or vinyl. On the remodels, we would use laminate, which is kind of a nice little upgrade. People really liked it. I got different models, things like that. Um, I put in 56 rose bushes in this park, so that was really nice. Actually, I put in more than that. I have 56 living rose bushes. I probably put in the 65, but we had really bad clay and soil and gravel, so they didn't last that long. We spent close to 100 grand on road remodel. That's where some of that capex came in. I said we raised 750. That was down. That was uh, down payment capex submeters, um, and we didn't do the the Metron now has like this monthly fee where you can rent them. We paid cash and then we installed them ourselves. So that, that costs like $43,000 to do as many pads. Um, and I was talking earlier, we also, uh, I'm looking here, we also hired police. We had a couple of people who were drug dealers. Somebody was, we think, had a prostitution house. We just would rent, you know, rent a cops, actually real cops. So we would put them in front of the house and pay them hourly and just in, 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 in uniform, in squad car. And just say, so just park there. Figured if this guy's dealing drugs and you're a drug user, you're going to probably find someplace else to buy your drugs because the cops are clearly onto this house. He's either in on it or the cops are going to sting him. So go elsewhere. Eventually the guy's going to leave and you're putting him out of business. So that worked out fairly well. So back to the economics to bring this full circle. Uh, I tied this deal up. He said, man, three. Uh, I needed 750 to get the deal done for all these different costs. I didn't have 750 just laying around. And I didn't have much time. And I didn't have a bank approval. And this deal was you know, very low occupancy. I mean, tried to give him the bank. There's no good historical financials. The deal has negative NOI. Um, it's, it just, park just looks like it sucks. It looks like a ghost town. There were potholes that were, in some places, 10 to 12 inches deep. I had to, I had to mill it all out and grind it out and relay, relay road base. I didn't do all this. I'm hired guys. I'm not, I don't have to do that stuff. Um, relay to asphalt, uh, seal coat, all, the whole nine yards. Um, and I'd never tackled a deal of this size. So this magnitude, you know, I was doing other deals for the previous four or five years, but they were on the side. They were smaller deals one at a time. I also had another big project just like this going on in Illinois. So I had a couple hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars of my money in that deal. So I was not as liquid on this as I'd like. And I had recently just left the real estate development firm. Um, so I didn't have a regular you know, day job, if you will. And I went to the banks, 
And the first several banks just told me, no way. We don't do trailer parks. Some of them said, we'll do it, but we want 40% down, 50% down. I go, look, guys, if I need 50% down, I might as well go with the seller. You know, he's got seller finance. I don't have to go through the hurdles and all this other kind of stuff. So I said, look, I need I need at least 70% down, 70% leverage, 30% down. And nobody was giving me a yes. So I was like, okay, you know, keep going, keep going. Well, finally I met this one bank in Kansas City Market, and I did some retail with these guys. And I was working on a big $50 million retail development. Uh, and they were going to make us an $11 million land loan. And land loans are kind of risky. Now, we had tenants lined up, national tenants stuff. But a land loan means these guys are willing to take some chances. So I figured maybe they'd take a trailer park loan. And I talked to this guy, Keith, and I called him. I said, Keith, I'm looking for a loan. I'm looking for at least 70% LTV. He said, I've heard the richest guys ever let money to are trailer parkers. Um, I'll give you 80. First 10 seconds. I was like, what? And I said, did I just get loan approval? He goes, well, i got to go through the process. Actually, it's under $2 million, so I have signature approval. That's my, he was the regional president. So he goes, yeah, you got yourself a loan. I was like, holy cow. So now I had a loan. So now I had you know, some bait to go fishing with. So I went back to the investors, and, and I had all kinds of people say, I'm in. Friends and family. I didn't have any real network, and I didn't know much back then about PPMs and SEC requirements. So I wasn't marketing. I was doing friends and family. And my friends and family weren't that rich, right? So I didn't have, nobody was writing me big checks. I had some 25s, 50,000s, a couple guys at 100,000. And it came closer and closer to time to write those checks. And I, and I gathered, and some of them told me, hey, I'm out. So I went to a couple private equity groups, which I really didn't want to do. I really didn't want a boss. And one of them wanted me, wanted me to do the, I ended up getting three guys interested. And one of them bailed because my deal was too lucrative. And it was going to piss off, they were senior housing developers, were going to piss off their investors. And the way that they pitched this, at least the way they pitched it to me was, hey, we can't do this anymore because you're showing too high of a return. And if we invest, show our investors this, they're going to, like you're doing better than ours, they're going to start looking elsewhere for the senior housing and for multifamily and all that. So they said we can't do it. And I really had to dumb down my performer because nobody believed I could pull this off. So I was showing, get these assumptions compared to the syndicators you see today. I was showing a four-year infill. And I thought it was reasonable. And then I was showing a 9% refinance cap rate. And I was showing a 9% disposition cap rate in year 10. I took no asset management fee. I took a 5% property management fee. And I was also showing almost no park-owned home income. I was saying, look, I'm going to sell these off. I'm going to sell them a cost. I'm going to dump them. No expenses. So I wasn't showing any of that extra income. And with that, Net of my fees, I was showing a 35% IRR. And people were like, no way. I knew if I, if I showed more aggressive assumptions, like a 5 cap or 6 cap or 7 cap on the refire the exit, or a 2-year infill instead of 4, which is what actually happened here, then the yield would be too high, and nobody would believe me. So I started getting these guys involved. I got down to two private equity groups, and one of them told me, I want you, they want you to do the, the PREF, hurdle method. So 10 pref, 3565 GPLP. And those weren't the original terms, but that's what we agreed on. And that's the group I eventually went with. Another group wanted me to do, they wanted me to get 20, but I was going to get 20 right out of the gate. And I was going to cap at 20. Uh, I've since learned, in all my subsequent syndications, I've learned there should be a second or third hurdle. Such as, okay, 10 pref, uh, 35 for me, 65 for you guys. But if I hit an IRR of, say, 15, 
Well, my share goes to 50 or 60 or 70. If I hit an IR 20, it goes to 80 or 90 or 95. Uh, one deal I even put a cap in. People didn't really like that. I had a couple of family offices slap me for it. But uh, we got the deal funded. And in some respects, I feel like I'm kind of trend-setting the industry. And, and I made some good money on this deal, but I made a lot of other people really rich. And they deserve it, and I'm not that bitter because they they backed me when I, nobody else wanted to back me. But at this point, I don't want to make them that rich again. It's like, come on, guys, you don't even make this kind of yield. So, and I'll get to the numbers here at the end of the movie. But I was having trouble raising the money. So I thought, man, I don't let this deal go. So I I called one of the top five operators in the country. Uh, everybody knows who he is. And I said, hey. And I knew him um, previously. And I said, I got this deal. Are you interested? And he he happened to own one of the parks on the same street. And he said, we love the market. We're interested. Call my business partner. He does all the underwriting. So I called the business partner. And he says, we're interested. I need this, 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 this. And I had already been running this deal like I was going to close this. I already had an A-plus zoning letter. I already had a survey. I already had a clean phase one. I already had market comps. I already had park on home inspections. I already had you know, whatever their due diligence stuff. Oh, bids for the roads, bid for tree repair. We, we, we paid $37,000 for tree, rem- tree, re- tree removal. <clears throat> this place was like the hidden garden, right? So it was really buttoned up. So they were interested, and I, and I sent them my contract. And the attorney said, your contract has problems. We needed, a, we needed on our contract. Because we have certain things we like. And I was like, what are you talking about? My contract's solid. Like, we bought, you know, my business partner in particular bought hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in deals on this form contract, which I have now modified to be MHP specific. And I said, what's wrong? He goes, well, this, this, this. I go, those are in there. Things like, we need, a, we need time for financing. We need zoning review. I go, I already got this stuff buttoned up, man. And he said, well, we can't do it. And I said, well, let me think about it. I said, well, I'm not going to, what we want you to do is introduce us to the seller. That's what he said. And we'll get this, we're real smooth. We'll tell the seller, hey, Ferd works with us. We need you to sign a different form contract. And the seller, like I said, was a rich guy that had this huge portfolio. So I was not dealing with some baby attorney here. I was dealing with a big time Chicago law firm. And back and forth, they were all over this. And if I introduce you to them, they're going to say, Ferd can't get a bot. Ferd doesn't have the money. And they're going to cut me out. I said, there's no way. I said, take my contract assignment. And my contract says, Ferd, my company, third floor properties, LLC, and or signs. So I had the right to assign it, unfettered right. Didn't have to be a member. Didn't have to be a controlling member or manager. I just I had the right to assign it. Uh, but I had to close my New Year's Eve, which was now we're looking at, oof, it was probably December 1 at this point. It was getting down the wire. And I told the guy, I said, the attorney, I said, this would have been, this would have been a Thursday. He said, "Look, my boss is out of town." I said, "I need to know by Monday at 8 a.m. or else I got to go another route." And he said, hey, "There's no interest." Um, I said, "What?" And I think it was too small for them in hindsight. Um, so I was like, "Okay, now what?" So I went to talk to these investment funds, and I meet one of the guys um, on site. On Saturday morning, he brings his kids and his wife, and we walk to park. And I talk pretty fast. You can probably tell through this podcast. And I, and I know my numbers pretty well. And I had been talking to this deal with a bunch of people for a while and other deals, and I usually was two or three steps ahead of them. And it was really annoying, to be honest, because I was like, come on, come on, come on, keep up, keep up. And 
And Paul kept up. And he said, you tell me they're not making any more of these? I said, I'm telling you they're not making any more of these. Cities hate them. So he said, you're telling me you can finish this, you can do this. And I said, yeah. And he just, this is like in 20 minutes. And he looked me in the eye and he said, as many as you can find. And he said, I'm in for a half a million. And he shook my hand. And I was like, holy cow. And I was like super pumped. Well, I'm like, okay, with half a man in the bank, I'm gonna, I'm, this deal is mine. I'm going to fund it. And, and I had commitments. I was doing two deals at once. I was still in Illinois, too. And I, I had like two million committed, but then they were dropping like flies. Everybody got cold feet or they said, my wife won't let me. Whatever their, my budding slippers are hiding behind me. Whatever their story was. So I, uh, I knew I was going to get this. So I ended up funding the other deal all by myself. Or dad, too. And then on this deal, uh, I was like, well, I'm going to use investor capital. And I ended up putting zero dollars in this deal. So this you know, little story here is how to turn a zero into a million, which is kind of cool. I recommend it. And Monday morning, the other attorney calls, the senior attorney. He, was, I, he says, Ferd, I was on vacation last week, and my baby lawyer didn't understand your contract. Your contract is fine. And in hindsight, I now know. I've read their contract like 10 times for clients. My contract is far superior in many respects. It's funny because I get paid about once a month the red line, a new version of this inferior contract. So it's, 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 it's actually bittersweet. Not bittersweet, it's actually doubly sweet. It's probably a bad analogy. So anyway, the guy says, we want the deal. So what was my fee? The norm, quote norm at the time, was 5 to 10%. This deal was a million three. So my fee should have been up to 130000 out of the gate, I said, I want 165 and not a penny less. And the guy said, we've never paid a fee that high. This is from the first junior lawyer. And I said, and the, and under, and the underwriting team. And I said, well, that's, that's, that's fine. I don't, know if I, I don't know if they're telling the truth or not. They said, we've never paid a fee that high. I said, well, you're going to have to. And the senior lawyer calls back and he said, we want the deal. We'll pay your fee. And I said, well, that deal expired at 8 a.m. You know, oh, come on. It's noon. I was out of town. I said, no, I'm not just negotiating hard. For, I go, I funded my deal. Paul gave me a half million bucks. I, and I got enough money. And he said, I understand. He said, I know of this guy, Paul. Now, now, you gotta, now you're going to need a bigger fee. He said, I understand that number's probably going to start with a two. I'd like you to go back to Paul and see what the number is. Well, three days ago, the 165 was just mine. There was no Paul, so now I got to split two. It ain't that attractive, so I said, "Thanks, but no thanks." And and my dad gets some credit for that because I was it was pretty tempting. I was like, I've been working on this for like three weeks because I forgot to tell you when I was working on the earlier when the city called me, I was working with this other developer, and the city said, "Don't do it." And I had a bunch of commercial projects going at that time, so I passed on the trailer park because I don't want to piss off the city because my partner said don't piss off the city so I didn't well later when I quit working for him because he stiffed me out of a bunch of money I said well, now I don't care so now I went and bought the dang deal I actually asked the mayor and the manager and the development director again because I have permission and they said Ferd we don't like trailer parks we like you and I said look you're gonna have another California Chicago operator that's gonna mismanage it or you're gonna have me I'm at least here you guys can call and yell at me and get me out here to fix something and they said you have permission to bid and and so that's that's what I did. But so I've only been working on this for like three four weeks, and I'm like I can make six figures uh, in short order. So I'm like, man, maybe let's just take this. That'll give me nice seed money. I won't have to raise money as much on the next deal. 
and I left over a million dollars on the table at the previous job, so I, it hurt. Um, so my cash was tied up, and I thought I had a big check coming, the guy just kept stiffing me, stiffing me, and it got too big, and I was like, okay, I can't keep taking receivable. I need my money, so I, so I bailed on that job, um, despite actually doing a really good job, in my opinion. So my dad said, dude, you got to get this deal bought. Go buy it. So I did, and got it bought. We closed on it. Less than 24 months later, we filled it. And it just appraised at $6.2 million. And I got a 65 LTV with three years interest only. 30-year uh, ammo, 10-year fixed rate from Fannie Mae, non-recourse. And I pulled out over $3 million on one park with zero down in less than 24 months in the lion's den with all these big dogs. And that's why I'm kind of anti-wholesale because I'm like, man, I could have made a one-time check. I've been a nice shot in the arm. That would have paid my bills for a year or two. But instead, I just worked harder. I'd have learned all kinds of stuff. And I just put my kids in private school until they graduated high school on one deal. So, God is good. Trailer park business is fun. Until next time, stay safe, have fun. God bless. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.